welcome, welcome, welcome back, Flight Suit Friday listeners. How's it going, Kenny? Good. How are you, Sam? I'm good, dude. Still uh, doing our ALC uh, podcast series. Um, saw some cool stuff today. Yeah, day day two, got to see the uh, 60 and basically 65 product lines, which they go by SR and MR. I don't know why they have to serve us, but yeah. yeah. I, I like, uh, obviously today was way cooler uh, than the fixed wing because helicopters are way cooler. Yep. Um, and it's cool because today we're actually going to talk about um, what those two product lines actually do. Like what the heck does that do for the fleet? Um, longevity of the 60, 65, how we're transitioning airframes, all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, I've been I've been in awe the, the whole time and just seeing, you know, uh, an aircraft come and land and start getting stripped down to new wires and uh, back to send it back out, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And we had Six the good, months later. good night last night, Seven Sounds Brewery. That was sweet. That was a lot of fun. Followed by Taco Bell. Can never go wrong with that for dinner. everything closes in Elizabeth City <laughs> yeah, by eight sweet. o'clock. So yeah, cool. did the old parking lot Taco Bell, oh, which yeah. I actually love. That's, I love Taco Dude, Bell. Crunchwrap Supreme. Yeah. You really can't go wrong. <laughs> that's actually gonna be my first question of the guests here. Let me get, let's just get started. <laughs> Got uh, a couple of 60 guys in the house. Welcome, guys. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having us. Going good. Sweet. Hey, Derek, you want to start? Just uh, tell us who you are, uh, what, uh, where you've been for the 60 uh, community and what you're doing now. Yeah, it's a short story. Uh, AMT1, Derek Ross. I've been stationed at East City and now ALC. <laughs> I went to a Air Station Elizabeth City as an airman in 2012. Was there for six years and then came here. Been here for four and just got a two-year extension. And you said you're from here, too? I graduated Virginia Beach, oh, Calum no High School, 2006. Yeah. No desire to leave? Zero. Zero desire. <laughs> Zero. If they make you leave, where you, where you want to go? It doesn't matter. Wherever. Okay. Just 60s. 60s. Why not 65s, man? Best best helicopter in the fleet. Right, guys? <laughs> we just talked about this right, right? right before you guys walked up. and <laughs> I think he and I are both in agreement that it is not the best helicopter <laughs> anywhere uh, besides whoa, the fleet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. All right. Uh, more important question. Favorite uh, food item from Taco Bell? I hate Taco Bell. Okay. Oh, cool. Moving on from Derek. Cool. Moving on. <laughs> Thanks, man. Welcome. <laughs> this is awesome to have you here. Uh, what's going on, sir? Yeah, I don't know that I can add a whole lot more to the Taco Bell discussion. I'm, I think the last time I had Taco Bell was maybe 2012. Everybody has a Taco Bell night every once in a while. Ah, it's been a long time. <laughs> my kids my kids are always asking about that, but we just it's not a Taco Bell family. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Josh Nelson, I am the, uh, the product line manager for the medium range recovery line. Sweet. MRR as you guys, yeah. uh, mer. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, uh, we're medium range. We, we can go offshore and do things opposed to the short range, you know, SRR. Hey, so, I like peeing every two hours. Yeah, so enjoy go. that. We got to enjoy that P2. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where have you been, uh, where you been stationed? Oh, How's your 60 career gone? Yeah. Uh, I've been sixties the whole time. Started flying in 05. Um, and i uh, been in uh, the West Coast uh, until I came here, uh, San Diego and Astoria. Oh, nice. Um, I liked, you guys did your uh, podcast out there for AHARS and talking to uh, Berto and Jane. Yeah. And that was about, I had a lot of reminiscing listening to that because uh, I think Astoria was my favorite operational flying tour in terms of just the flying itself and the unit was really uh, awesome at the time. So Great place to live too. It is. It is. It really was awesome. Um, and uh, after grad school came here and uh, been here at ALC for four years now. Nice. And you're, uh, I know we were talking earlier, but you're planning on hanging it up here? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to be uh, retiring next summer and uh, moving on to the next chapter. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. So real quick, what does a product line manager do? So the product line manager is the uh, kind of the herder of cats in a lot of ways um, with all of the different things that go into supporting a uh, airframe. Um, you're the chief logistician uh, with that point of contact between headquarters and with our product line here at ALC. So we have our program managers and our system managers up at 7-Eleven and, and 41 uh, that we are uh, talking with and they define the requirements. Obviously 7-Eleven says, hey, here's what we need. And then 41 says, okay, here's how we're gonna do it. And then we go out and we carry that out. So uh, we do everything from the you know PDM we talked about, that program depot maintenance to uh, doing all of the uh, projects that mm -hmm. we're looking to do to avoid obsolescence, uh, whether it's a new radar, new multifunction display, whatever it is. Um, so as the PLM, you're kind of like that, that pivot point between ALC and the fleet and ALC and headquarters. So you're kind of right there in the middle. Gotcha. Nice. And how many 60s do you guys take in every year? And spit out. Yeah, so uh, we take one in every thirty six days. So we usually will do around, um, you know, ten to eleven. It depends on the year. Ten to eleven PDMs that we're uh, we're bringing in, and and you know, it's moving through phase every thirty six days. Okay, yeah. nice. And uh, obviously, it's no no secret. Um, the Coast Guard is going sixties. We're taking on more sixties, looking to transition. You know, one air station roughly um, over the next fifteen years or so. Are you guys going to be able to keep up the demand with that? Yeah. So uh, 60s are taking over the world, right? Yeah. Commandant mm -hmm. said it. So we're, we're going to do it. Yeah, um, it's happening. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a busy and exciting time over, uh, over at the product line right now with uh, preparing for that expansion. That's a great question of, can we do it? Um, before the commandant ever goes out there and says that, there's been a lot of groundwork that goes into preparing for and looking at what's that look like? How does that, um, how's that work? And uh, we've been doing a lot of work here at ALC, my predecessor and the people that have been here with, uh, with the previous teams have been working for a while to look at what does it look like in terms of footprint? Um, what's our production capacity? So uh, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, starting in, uh, we just got the signed decision memo uh, expanding to Ventura County. It'll probably be in the spring of 2025 that we'll uh, put off uh, the product line four additional 60s with three of those going to Ventura County. Uh, mm -hmm. The fourth one, it hasn't been decided where it'll go, but that'll be uh, directed at some point. Um, and more than likely, what you're going to see is every year thereafter, we'll be putting four more out in the fleet for three years, and then it'll jump to 80 year once we kind of get that ball rolling. Dang. Uh, with the whole the whole goal being that we can get to 100 by about 2032, get it to a fleet of 100. Uh, we'll make an evaluation at that point of, okay, how do we get from 100 to 127? Um, and what does that look like? But that's that's our marching orders for the next 10 years. Yeah. And then future vertical lift happens in 2040. We're somewhere out there. You know, getting yeah. rid of all those 60s that you guys just built up. But <laughs> yeah. 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 That's awesome. What, what do you do uh, on the product line, Derek? I solely work Navy conversion. Oh, so okay. I, I assist uh, with tech services structure stuff, but primarily I oversee... QA, engineering, anything those guys need for the whole side of Navy conversion. Yeah, what is Navy conversion? Like, what are we doing? So we're taking hotel model and Foxtrot model, mm -hmm. Navy 60s. So we're getting anywhere from 3,000 up to 6,000 hours, and we're doing the structural mods required to make them into our new Tango model. Yeah. 
It's crazy to think that their old models that they mothballs at three or six thousand hours. Yeah, we just had like, one that was thirty five hundred hours. That's so. Just for some context, the Coast Guard sixty fleet on average is just over sixteen thousand flight hours, and uh, you know we're getting these mothballed Navy planes with you know three thousand hours on them. Yeah, I always thought that like we uh, yeah sixty five drivers you know had airframes that had way more hours on us, but like there's plenty of sixties out there that probably have. Uh, equal to, if not more than some of our airframes. Uh, we've got, but we're probably still on the lower end of you guys. Cause I know you've been, they've been flying the 65 since 82 and we started flying the 60 and 90. So we're okay. a little bit, a little bit behind you guys. And I'm, I think you have plenty there in the twenties, you know, 25,000 hour range. Um, our high flyers in the 18,000 range. Okay, yeah. cool. That's awesome. Is it a good program or, uh, are you seeing hulls that are worth swapping over or? Yeah, I mean every every hole we get in, those those guys out there are the we, you know, the reason that program runs. Yeah, the, the contractors and the civil service guys. I mean, it's insane what those guys can do, and there's nobody in the world that does what those guys and gals do. Yeah, so they're taking it and just stripping it you guys completely stripping to nothing. It. Yeah, I think the only other conversion program that's ever been done on a sixty was an army program, if I'm not mistaken, and it was very 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 minimal structure yeah. getting replaced. I mean, these yeah. guys are. It was put to me when I first got in that job. The Coast Guard is like having your granddad leave you a Corvette that was just pristine. He wiped it with a diaper every day. All you got to do is just keep it nice. Mm -hmm. Navy conversion is like going back to some barn somewhere and finding some ratty, wore out Corvette. <laughs> you taking it and doing a complete custom remod on it to make it that show car. I got you. I mean, that's the stuff we're getting is junk. I mean, yeah. It's, it, they do it and it's insane what they can do, but the Navy just does not do an amazing job of taking care of their aircraft the way we do in the Coast Guard. Yeah, I mean, sometimes yeah. they don't need to or they get the money. To, oh, they have the, I mean, no, obviously, know, they got the money to just trash them. But yeah, I mean, to, to see one go from start to finish and it's pristine, beautiful, painted, ready to go out of the fleet and do what it's going to do for the next 10, 20 years is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I would have to imagine, at least for me, I'm obviously not a 60 pilot, but for a 60 pilot out there, they're probably like, yeah, we get it. And then, you know, we throw some avionics in it and boom, send it back out to the fleet from a 60. But I know you were showing me today, like it's way more involved with that. What are some of the big things that you guys are doing uh, with that conversion? Uh, number one is your nose. We, yeah. I showed you that earlier. We yeah. have to completely rebuild from the 184 station all the way to the Ford Radome. Yeah. That's all brand new. Every single time they roll in. Uh, your beams we're going through, which yeah. I showed you guys beams. Yeah. So we're having to figure out is the beam over 10,000 hours? Are we going to call it dead for that? Are we going to keep it in business? Got to redo the crack mitigation kit, which works in hand in hand with our beams. Mm -hmm. We're always changing main line of gear fittings every single time. Mm -hmm. And on any given plane, I mean, your whole left-hand wall is getting changed. That's 354, from 379 all the way up to 308 is all changed. Yeah, and you were saying, what was it, butt plates or something like that? The well, we got to redo the whole, one of our big meat and potatoes cards is the, cabin tub conversion. Yeah. It's for our butt line 20s, That's butt line is. five and butt line 20. Yeah. Which is our flight mail seat or flight max seat tracks. Yep. That's all brand new, non-existent in an H model or a Foxtrot. It's like a lot of metal fabrication you guys are doing. A uh, whole lot. Whole lot. Yeah. 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 It was really cool seeing a 60 just stripped down to bare metal nuts and bolts and having you walk through today was, was awesome. I couldn't help but think of like a little bit of like the personal aspect of like where has this aircraft been and done? And like, what is it going to do? Like how many flight mechs have been qualified in there? How many swimmers have deployed to do whatever 
or vert reps, whatever that thing is done. Um, and all, all the aircraft that we saw today, but that was, that was really cool. Thank you so much for, for showing yeah. us what was, what was going on. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because, uh, as we get the new Navy planes to, to delivered to ALC, I will uh, often go out and take a picture of it because it's got names on the side and stuff. And uh, I've got friends who are, um, you know, up in Norfolk area, they're uh, Navy captains who don't fly anymore, but they flew these aircraft in combat. And uh, I'll, I'll be talking to them and I'll show them the planes. And some of them, they're like, I flew that plane <laughs> and they get tears in their eyes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They're like, I, I was landing and picking someone up at this spot and they can tell you about it. And uh, so it is, uh, in a lot of ways, I've said it's, it's very cool to take, because I love the 60. I think it's um, no, no offense to you. It's sweet. plastic, fantastic guys, but it is sweet. I, I personally think it's the best helicopter in the world. Uh, and so to take these, these aircraft that were kind of thrown out mothballed after 3000 hours or 8,000 hours, whatever it is to take it and give it a second life where we're now going to use it for a life-saving mission is really, really super cool and touches on that personal yeah. aspect you're talking about. Yeah. Captain Wilson the other day said something we were walking around. He's like, yeah, the Coast Guard aircraft have saved more people's lives than any other aircraft in the world. And it just kind of made me stop and think you're like, yeah, who, who else? The would 65 it, it has saved more people. Did he say it. the 60? He said 65. Yeah, so there so you we go. just rolled over 11,000 lives saved in the 60 uh, earlier really? this year. Yeah, I don't know what the 65 number is, but we just rolled past 18,000. Yeah, at least yeah. at minimum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, that's a crazy number. And, and then combined, too, like probably somewhere 30,000 lives saved in the rotor ring fleet in the Coast Guard's history. That, yeah. I mean, it's impressive. What, what uh, problems are you guys facing? Like, I mean, you see all the helicopters come through and it's amazing to see what you guys do from just stripping it down and then, you know, spit it out the end of the end of the hangar and for test flights. But what's the big thing in the 60 community right now or some of the big issues that you guys are seeing? Yeah. So I'll, I'll let Derek talk to this in a second, but one of the things that I just think before we even like say right now, we know we're talking, we have 48 sixties in our fleet right now. And I just said, we're going to go to a hundred mm -hmm. in the next 10 years. That's more than doubling the fleet. Right. So the uh, supply demand, that signal oh, yeah. is going to really increase. So messaging that with our vendors and, and with uh, Sikorsky and letting them know like, Hey, this, this is uh, you know, going to be an increase in the demand. Um, that's one of the things that that groundwork we were talking about laying that. Um, but there continues to just be that, um, that constant struggle. We've always operated on the margins from a supply perspective. Really it's what we budget ourselves for. That's what we we can only spend what we receive. Um, so that's, um, that's something that we're constantly fighting and uh, always feels like, you know, I, I've made the comments like a whack-a-mole. You've got one part that's creating an issue. And I think the 65 is in the same world where you're like, oh my goodness, this is a critical part. We got to figure out a alternative solution and, and we do. And then it's on to the next part. Uh, our whole goal and purpose is always to put out an airworthy product. Uh, we always say is it the decision we're making the best decision for the lifesaver, the operational pilot air crew. Mm -hmm. um, so, if any decision we're making isn't a part of contributing to that outcome, uh, then we're making the wrong decision. So we're constantly having to make those evaluations uh, on those supply uh, issues. Um, you know, a perfect example is uh, stab actuators that became an issue for us a couple of years ago and trying to figure out, well, this is the only vendor that repairs that we got to figure out if we can find other vendors or get other vendors qualified or mm -hmm. figure out better ways to do this from a airworthiness perspective. Maybe we're, testing it to a too rigorous of a standard or whatever, those kind of things that are uh, really a lot of what the product line and engineering and supply are constantly, it's a constant churn. Um, and I'll tell you, if you came to the product line 10 years ago, they're doing the same thing. 
Mm-hmm. And if you came 10 years before that, they're doing the same thing. And I think if you come from 10 years from now, they'll be doing the same thing. Okay. It is a constant, uh, that is, that is what we're here doing constantly. Yeah. You see any major problems coming through when you're working on aircraft, Eric? I mean, obviously my, my perspective is a lot different than the commanders. Yeah. I'm out there on the floor every day, uh, with the, with the supply stuff for sure. We've had to change the way we've done some things in the past, talking about going back to Sikorsky, determining airworthiness. Uh, one thing we were doing was 10,000 hours we were killing beams. And by killing them, we were changing them. You know, we were doing these four beam swaps. Just basically pay me now or pay me later. It was hitting a reset button here over the past year or so. We've run out of right-hand beams. Yeah. Well, just for, uh, real quick, just for dumb 65 pilots listening here, they don't know what a beam, like what you're talking about. I know what it is because I looked at it, but just explain where that is in the aircraft, what that does. So your four beams are where your main gearbox is mounting. They're okay. supporting the entire load of the aircraft. They're right. probably one of the, um, the top, most top five part. most critical fittings in the entire aircraft. Okay. So we were changing them at 10,000 hours. And I don't know where that ever came from where that number got picked from. I assume it came from the original 10,000 life limit. Yeah, I could real quick. Uh, that was a uh, area, especially on the left-hand side, where we were starting to see structural cracks. Yeah. And um, so there had been about 20 years ago, Sikorsky had said, hey, you can go beyond 10,000 hours on this airframe um, if you keep doing the PDM the way you are. Well, as we did, we started seeing those cracks, especially on the left-hand side, just with the way the rotor head turns and the, the forces and the way it we, we uh, hover and um, so what Sikorsky came back with was like, Hey, you know what? Yeah. You can fly the aircraft beyond 10,000 hours, but changing those beams and not letting them go beyond 10,000 hours will mitigate any of these crack issues. So that's what drove, uh, changing the beam is every 10,000. 10, yeah. So documented on right-hand side, we hadn't had any cracked right-hand beams, which I also showed you guys the hoist fitting, yeah. the shear deck. And we went back through the data and said, Hey, on right-hand beams are going to be case by case basis. But that's one of the ways that we worked around that problem of having supply issues. So we see supply definitely. And we have two guys on the hangar deck. I wish y'all could have met them today. They're Mech 3 parts makers. There's nothing on that aircraft that those guys cannot make. Really? I mean, it's it's amazing to me the the kind of stuff that those guys do. And I mean, and that's all they do is just backfill the supply warehouse is with it, handmade parts. So, and I want to speak to that because, you know, people here, we've talked about a Corvette and a garage and we're making parts. So it kind of sounds like, okay, are we just kind of winging it? And the truth yeah. is, this is a very rigorous process that, you know, we have at ALC processes in place. Anytime you're going to make a part, right. it goes through an engineering review. There's drawings that are approved, um, materials that are selected that are all uh, approved at the appropriate engineering authority level. Yeah. And so it's not, um, you know, Hey, we need that part there. And someone goes back in the shop and whips it up and, and makes it it's, we know that that part is one that we have approved for making. We know how to make it, that kind of thing. So, um, it is, it is a rigorous process, but we find ourselves as Derek has alluded to having to make more and more of those parts as, as time goes on, because it gets harder to, to get the parts. Yeah. I just find it interesting that you guys uh, are talking about making parts when you're flying the aircraft that, you know, every service is flying. So like, there's a lot of them and Sikorsky is, is making a ton of these aircraft still. So I would always think that uh, the supply issue would be easy, but maybe it's just because there are so many of them that everybody else is pulling parts and, I don't know. I don't know that it's necessarily that or it's nobody's getting to the lifespan of the aircraft where they're needing this supply stock. That's a good point. And I mean, yeah, all the parts they make, again, we... to hit off what Commander said, I and mean, they're using Sikorsky prints, 
to make these. I mean, they're certified right. and we're form fitting. I just signed a form fit function this morning for a clip that's that big that goes up in the nose. Yeah. That that they're making in house. It's getting attached to nine seven five ALC part number. Yeah. But just the depth that those guys go to on those aircraft is it's out of this world. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. Yeah. And that, I do think that Derek just touched on that. You know, they talk about with uh, the auto industry, they, they sell cars, not looking to make a profit on the car. It's on the parts that they, you know, 80% of your profit comes from parts that you sell to a car down the road. Uh, in the aviation industry, they generally don't expect you to fly your aircraft like we have yeah. or drive like we, you know, we're driving the old Corvette. So the idea that, um, you know, we would be asking to change out beams at 10,000 hours. They usually are just saying, I'm, I'm getting beams to build new helicopters. Yeah. And so that, that is, I think a little bit of the challenge. Uh, I think the, the other part of it is, you know, a lot of people hear sixties and they say, Hey, they're flown. There's 4,000 sixties in the whole inventory between the DOD wow. and everything. And, yeah. and so you got this huge supply pool, but a sixties, not a sixties, not a 60. Uh, there's different variations of it. So, you know, Derek's talking about Navy conversion. When we first received the J model 1990, it had been built, uh, the H model came into service in 1986. So that's the closest uh, version. And that's why we're using H's. Foxtrots are, are about the same time. There's some minor variations there, but um, the first thing we do is convert it to a J model, our old airframe. And then we apply the TCTOs that bring it forward to a T model. Oh, no so, way. So that yeah. is that process. You're building it into a J and then you're making it a T. Yeah. Um, we can't necessarily go to another airframe or another uh, version of the 60 and say, hey, I want that part, that part, that part, because it doesn't necessarily, we have built up, as, as Derek will point out, um, until about a year or so ago, Sikorsky didn't even recognize the T as a version because we had done that, certified that here at ALC. Yeah. It's only as we're working with them to get green holes, they're building us green holes that we're gonna be used as we, as we slept these older holes, um, that they have uh, had to get involved with us and say, okay, here's what a T looks like. Yeah, I find it really interesting too, um, I, just thinking about what the Sikorsky guys, you know, sitting at the plant when we call them, and we're like, yeah, we're, we're flying through 10,000 hours, like what, what do you gotta, what do we gotta do with this beam? And they must have like a laughing joke sometime. Maybe with maybe they don't with Airbus too. But like we're always the are we always the organization that goes to them like, hey, we need to fly this, uh, you know, one hundred and fifty percent more than what everybody else is doing with this same airframe. And they're just like, well, here comes the Coast Guard again. Yeah, asking, absolutely. Asking for the uh, asking for the moon kind of question. Yeah, I've always thought it's kind of funny when we we deal with vendors. It's you know we're driving up on the lot with the the beat up old Corvette and. Uh, we're asking, hey, can we put that uh, satellite radio and, uh, you know, that uh, new um, uh, cruise control in it? And and they're like, that's from 1980. And <laughs> I don't know that anything will talk to anything we have. <laughs> so and you're like, oh, we'll, we'll figure that out. Don't you worry. You're like, yeah. well, you going to sell us the part or Just not? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's Just our let's try. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Man, that's cool. Uh, totally different uh, track. What air station are you looking forward to the most from taking over from the 65 community? Savannah. Savannah? Okay. Savannah. I'd go to Savannah in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, that's where you go out of East City. 100%. I, I like it. <laughs> Let's that was, go. That's a quick answer. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm a big fan of the West Coast and the flying out there. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, San Francisco, eventually mm. uh, Ventura County is going to be a cool, yeah. cool yeah. spot as well. I mean, y'all um, were used to be in San Francisco. So. Yeah, years and years ago. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What are you guys excited about for the 60 community, um, you know, next five years, 10 years, anything that we haven't talked about already? So uh, I don't know that people will 
everyone will be excited about it. But, you know, we talked earlier about the blade fold tail fold uh, situation. Oh, yeah, we had you brought that so up. We didn't yeah. even talk on that, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, there's always been that that mafia that kept 60s off the back of ships and kept 65s doing all the deployments, but uh, that's going to change. Um, what happened to the mafia, man? Did the, did the Don get the, taken out? No, I think, new, I think, new guys I think in place, the 65 or? started calling uncle, and they said, okay, someone's going to have to, someone else will have to step up. So, uh, no, we, um, we were given a tasking memo by the vice uh, about four years ago to reincorporate and I say reincorporate because the 60 did have blade fold tail fold when we first got it from Sikorsky. We took it off 20 so years ago because mm -hmm. it was a maintenance nightmare. Uh, so the, our team here at ALC has uh, reconstituted that over the last several years and we are um, complete with our testing of the system and uh, got approvals for it. Uh, we're now moving forward towards looking at uh, some implementation validation. We did a shipboard validation on an NSC earlier back in uh, April uh, we're doing uh, some HSK validation uh, stuff, um, HELO support kit stuff uh, mm -hmm. down down uh, in maybe uh, later in September with Arctic Shield to put a 60 on the back of an NSC and we'll kind of let them be out there for 10 to 15 days and see if what our HSK list looks like is uh, is valid. Um, and then I would say, uh, you know, there's still a lot of things that have to be worked out, but probably the second half of the decade, you can start seeing 60s uh, doing these deployments. So yeah, buddy, uh, yeah. If, uh, yeah. Get some. 60 community going to have to get, get excited about that. Yeah. Are you excited about that? I won't be around for it, but I think, uh, I, I'll tell you what, it's been exciting to be a part of it. I, uh, I understand why the mafia has always been there. I, I don't know that I would, uh, be excited about, I, I did time on ships before I went into flying and, mm -hmm. and there's a reason I went into flying. So yeah, I'll yeah. just, I'll just say that. And so uh, I had asked you this earlier, sir, but there's, you guys have two different kits that you're putting on the aircraft and, and what's your, What's the grand plan? Like, is everybody ha is ship helo all the air stations? Are there specific ones that you're targeting? Yeah, so it's going to be broken up. Uh, we we call it Kit A and Kit B, and Kit A is all of the uh, brackets and the wiring and and things like that that make the airframe capable of being a blade full tail fold aircraft. Right. Every aircraft in our fleet will be Kit A capable. Uh, from there, we have what's called Kit B, which is all the dynamic components. It's a new rotor head that. Uh, it allows the, the main rotor head to index. So you basically hit a button and uh, it indexes and folds on its own. It's automatic. Yeah. And uh, then we'll fold the tail up manually. Uh, that is only going to be installed on, again, right now it's all projections. Nothing's finalized, but roughly 44 aircraft or so is what's being discussed. Okay. Um, it's only so a half part. The fleet, yeah. Almost half the fleet. Yeah. It, yeah. It'll be a roughly probably about a third. Oh, I guess at 127, the end. 127. Yeah. Yep. So uh, when you look at it, you're looking at probably a total of um, eight of the air stations, probably like four on one coast, four on the other, mm -hmm. that will be all blade full tail fold. And they will support the days deployed aboard ship because we don't want to mix and match. Um, the maintenance is different. The procedures and inspections are different. So you don't, what you don't want is an air station that has, you know, six blade full tail fold and three standard Heads. You want all the same. It'll be all the same at one unit. That's interesting. Do you think you either you foresee any issues um, coming up in the future with, you know, you have a lot more dynamic parts that are moving around on that aircraft that we've never used since the history of the 60, right? Uh, and you're going to be moving that? Are you going to have a lot more fatigue or? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, the, think Navy, so. the Navy uses it day in and day out. That's true. It's a, I mean, it's a tried and true. The Navy's using it right now as we speak. Yeah. I think the cutters are going to be where you're going to see issues. Or maybe just putting the uh, aircraft in the hangar because you guys, I'm assuming it's just it's a lot be more so weight tight. on the back of that that ship that we don't use right now. Yeah. I'm just curious to see what happens with 
the way the cutters can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be, um, you know, it's one thing to throw uh, a system on board an aircraft and say, okay, go forth and do things. But there's a lot of logistics that have to be figured out. And I, you know, for example, a training piece, right? Yeah. So, uh, when we have this uh, aircraft on the back of a cutter, we have a system for towing it. Um, who does that? Is it going to be the uh, ship's crew? Is it going to be the uh, aviation crew? Are they trained? How's that track? All, all these kind of things have to be figured out. So there's a lot of logistical hurdles that will have to be uh, jumped over. And then, um, yes, when we did the shipboard validation, it, it got in there, but it's tight. Um, it? So, yeah, uh, I, I do think at some point we'll have a blade dinged here or there. Cause um, it, it, is it tight with the external fuel tanks at all? Well, you um, got to pull the left hand extended pylon off. Do you really? Okay. Yeah. yeah Cause the navies they don't have those, right? Right. And that's one of the things we're looking at is, uh, we'll probably have a standard configuration for shipboard deployment, which will not ex- include the external tanks. Yeah. Um, you know, the externals take it, our main fuel loads about 4,000 pounds of gas in the mains. And then the externals get us another 2000 pounds. So if you take off that capability, you're reducing your capability by 33%, right? But it's still a four great, hours yeah, that's, that's, time, that's, right? that's of a three and a half to four hours of flight time easy. Yeah. So that's plenty for a ship, uh, to, to, to support a ship's operations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 65 isn't doing it and it is tight, man. I remember putting a 65 and a 378 or 270 and it's literally like, inches of, of clearance. I mean, I think the shops are supposed to have like 18 inches all around or something, but man, sometimes that 18 inches is you eyeball. It, it starts with 18 inches and then yeah. someone moves something in there and then, you know, it's a constant battle to be like, Hey, get this yeah. crap out of here. Cause if that thing falls, we're ground, we're ground. Yeah, like we're and the, the shipboard community doesn't always, you know, understand how simple something breaking is. Okay. This aircraft no longer certified for flight and yeah. Hopefully we get a part in the next seven days. Yeah. And being, so. being, being stuck on the back of a ship's just a, not, not what we want to oh, be. Oh no. Yeah. You just, yeah. uh, eat till you're tired and <laughs> sleep till you're hungry. <laughs> that's about it. I've never heard that. Yeah. Before. That's all you do. Dude, that's good. <laughs> oh man. Do you guys have any other, uh, parting shots before we. Yeah. I did want to let Derek talk one more time about something. Uh, you know, first off, Derek was our Oliver F. Berry award winner last year. NBD. So, yeah. Congrats, man. That's yeah. nice. That's Thank awesome. You. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Thanks, and I can tell you well-deserved. He's uh, one of our outstanding leaders here on the hangar deck. And I wanted to let him talk about, cause uh, one of the things he does and one of the things that was in that nomination was his uh, work running our advanced structural repair school here at ALC. It's oh, really? open to the fleet. And, uh, and I, I don't know how much people know about that message goes out about it. It's uh, TQC provides the, the funding for it, but I wanted uh, Derek to kind of talk about what that uh, looks like. And, and so if anyone out there is at an air station listening and thinks, man, that sounds cool. I'd like to do it. So well, Derek, if you want to just tell them all about that. Yeah. Thanks for matter. Uh, I, I love the school. I went through it back in 2014 mm-hmm. and at the time it was really only sixties. We just let a 65 guy come through this last class. Let him in. I, they, senior chief had to ask me, so you go with a 65 guy come? I said, <laughs> sure, let, let him come on. Uh, it's a good school. It's been up and down. It's really weird because it's not an actual, it's taught out of our own hide, out of our own money at MRR. Yeah. Uh, what I, is it? So it's it's sheet metal repair okay. is, is basically what it gets down to. A school has been whittled down and whittled down and whittled down to now. You went from when I went through and probably when you went through where it's, it was a flush patch. Now they make a picture frame like they can give to their mom. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it, they've tied our hands behind our back with sheet metal. So I try to get this school online where they actually learn practical stuff. The guys can come first week, they get tools back in their hands. 
actually started doing solid rivets, Cherry Max rivets, high locks, B100s. Second week, they do a practical repair of something that we at the product line would would approve and authorize a field level unit to do. Yeah. And then their third week, they're out there working with the same guys and gals I was talking to y'all about. On the- On, on the 60. On the line, no way. I mean, they, the guy that just came through, he just completely ripped up 247 and 265 float bag fitting all apart. And I asked him after he left, they said the guy did work like he'd been doing it for 20 years. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a really good school and I really, really believe in it for the fleet right now. Cause yeah. So I, I think it, it really is an outstanding opportunity for folks to come in and you might think, well, okay, sheet metal repair, are you really going to use that? But I'll tell you, um, I, I tell the students when they come through, uh, it saves the Coast Guard because we at ALC, we will send a field team out if there's a repair at the unit that the unit's like, hey, this is, it's either deemed that they can't do it and we have to send a field team. But there's sometimes where it's like that in between, right? And it's like, uh, yeah, here's a repair plan, but we don't have anyone that can do that. Right. And, uh, you know, I was an engineer at a unit one time when we had the power supply from a crane, overhead crane, fell off and put a hole in the top of our aircraft uh, one night doing maintenance. Sweet. And so we, you know, we'd go through notifications, we show ALC and it's like, oh yeah, we're going to send a field team out. Here's a repair team. And I have an AMT2 on the hangar deck. He's like, I've been to the structural repair school. I can do that in my sleep. And we're like, really? He's like, yeah. And so talk to ALC and ALC's like, yeah, you got this. And so he did it and he did a phenomenal job on it. And uh, the Coast Guard didn't have to pay to send contractors out as a field team to repair that. And we had mm -hmm. the repair done in 24 hours, you know. So there was an example of his, this course is, it provides dividends to the fleet. Yeah. And um, it really is not only an opportunity for them to get that hands-on experience, but really to come to CLC, like you guys have seen the last couple of days. Yeah. I think ALC is this three-letter word that's like a magic box in the fleet where just parts come from mm -hmm. and aircraft and how that happens, no one really knows, right? Mm -hmm. So for them to come here and see that is, uh, especially at that E4, E5 level, is really eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, it's good too for the fleet's perspective, like I believe that in what ALC is doing, like even though we don't, nobody really gets a chance to see this except for the engineers and occasional visitors, but you're right, like, what you guys do here is so extensive and so um, important to the extent, like extending our aircraft life. But the ability for us to, like you guys can translate that to the fleet operator be like, yeah, ALC's got it, I believe, which I definitely obviously do. Um, it's, it's an awesome spot. Um, but yeah, with that repair job too, like what a great opportunity to have some job satisfaction on a something that you don't normally get to do. Like, hey, I'm not waxing the aircraft and washing it today. I'm not doing a seven-day inspection or whatever that yeah. normal inspection is. You're like, man, I've done this like 600 times and it's the same thing. And it works too, even if they're not, I mean, their MOs have to believe in this too to let their guys do it. Because I understand that when you got an 800 hour down and you got a guy that's a go-getter, it's hard for them to let that guy go for a week to go do a major metal repair. Yeah. It's easy to hit a, a field team button. But at the same time, when there's damage, you have a guy that understands how to speak the language. He at least has a clue of what we're looking for. So he can go in there and take real pictures, mm -hmm. point us right to the damage, and you still get investment on that, even if he's not doing the repair. He's, yeah. he's a contact out there that, hey, that guy got this. He understood this. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And that's that in and of itself is, is worth a lot. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think ideally it'd be awesome if at least uh, one person at each year – each air station had been in their had course. That, yeah. So even if they don't do the repair, when there's damage, they're able to provide that uh, feedback into the repair plan or the pictures and the documentation because it really does, knowing what you're looking at goes a long way. And Navigating the manuals, that's another one. Yeah. A lot of guys don't ever get into the Dash 3. They don't get into the SRM TAC 4. They don't get into that stuff. A lot of guys don't even know that 
the SRM TAC four is a manual. Yeah. They come here and they're blown away by that, that that's even a thing. What is that? It is an IPV (laughs) for structural parts. So it's just like a normal dash four that any hangar deck mechanics. What is an IPV? Illustrated parts breakdown. Okay, great. Okay, I'm with you. So any of your your guys on your hangar deck know what the dash four is or their IPV is, any AMT2, but the SRM TAC four gets down to the nuts and bolts of what actual bolt goes in there, what rivet goes in there. And then we have fitting damage all the time, major forged airframe fittings that these units need to know limits on. Well, it's right there. You can look it up in the BB100, which is our forged fittings manual mm-hmm. that a lot of people just don't know. They come here and I make them use that. I make them get through there and learn that that's there and that's a resource. Yeah. A lot of the time your question's answered right there without even routing a request. Right. It's right there. So, you just didn't know you had it. Just didn't know it was even there. Yeah. That's awesome. Sweet. You guys got any other parting shots? Kenny? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I have, you got I have one, one yeah, more. Derek, what do you got? Yeah. So I, I've, I've been in the fleet. I've got ALC birds. People, people think sometimes that it may not be 100% or they want to take it and do a shakedown flight, especially for West Coast guys. We just flew this thing across country yep. with two guys in the back and two guys in the front. We're giving you a good aircraft. I don't know what the fleet's mantra is or what they're thinking or what's going around, but when we fly that thing across country, it is a good aircraft. It's if something breaks two days after it's yours, it could have broken had it been at your unit for three years. Mm-hmm. We I think that gets lost in translation when yeah. people get a new airframe from ALC. They think that this is just going to be a brand new off the showroom floor aircraft. I don't know if sixty five guys deal with that as well, but I know we hear it from sixty fleet. Yeah, it's not brand new, but we just flew it. Yeah. That, that's a great point because uh, we fly 25 to 30 hours on the airframe just at the end of the line between test flights and certification flights mm-hmm. before it gets on the road. And so then let's say you're flying it to uh, Kodiak and it's uh, six, seven days to get out there, seven hour days, six hour days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another 40 hours. Yeah, I just know, went so, to Kodiak. It was 36 hours. Yeah, yeah. so he, he did 36 hours. So you're looking at close to 60 hours on the air, aircraft. Um and uh, our goal is to fly as much as we can to work out those kinks. Right. Um, and we do. You see a lot of the little kinks up up, up front, but then it smooths out. So uh, you're getting an aircraft. And, and we see a lot of units. You deliver the aircraft to the unit, and uh, they're running out to put SAR stuff in it, and it's going to stand the ready that night. Yeah. And, and that's that's the mentality we want the fleet to have, is that this aircraft yeah. is ready. This yeah. aircraft's ready to stand the ready tonight. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good point, because, you know, in the 65s, the 600-hour package, and you said 800-hour for, is that what you guys do? Like your heavy maintenance package? Our, our, biggest, uh, our biggest is a 12, 12, 12 okay, 8, so, 6, 4, 2. Right, like in in any sense, like you, you have to go through all these test flights after it, and then there's typically a couple day or week or whatever period that it takes to get all those gremlins out, right? I mean, at bare minimum, we got to fly at least 18 hours for two sets of retorks. Yeah, yeah and we, so it's yeah. the same thing for you guys. I, I was just trying to compare it. Like your maintenance is, how long does it take to get a 60 through the product line? So for us, it's about 240, 220 days, yeah. 140 to 150 work days. How long is a 1200 hour inspection? Uh, if you got a unit doing a 1200 hour, you're probably doing an eight. It's going to be a 12, eight, four. Probably six weeks, five weeks. Six weeks, yeah, yeah so over like, a month. Yeah. Six week a month compared to you know whatever that is, eight months. Like yep. yeah, that that time period for getting all the kinks out is greater, right? And right. so like sometimes those kinks are left, and and you know you just got to get them out of the, out of the system. So yeah, it makes sense to me that like, and especially with you guys flying them so much, like you can iron out most of those kinks already. It just happens with a long maintenance period. So. 
Yeah. Or maybe I that makes just, no sense. It's just easy to be like, thanks, ALC. It is so <laughs> easy, dude. Sweet, guys. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> it is so um, easy to point the finger. We're all guilty of that, too, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So easy to yeah. point the finger. All right, well, well, should we do a hot seat? Yeah, let's do a hot seat. And hot seats complete. Finally, we got all 65 pilots and uh, 65 flight mech in here. Not, I mean, Derek's still here hanging out with us, but uh, it's good to be with you guys. Welcome. Uh, Commander, let's start with you. Where, who, who you are, where you're from, uh, where you've been stationed. Yeah, sure. That's uh, Commander J.R. Carrillo. I uh, am a Navy DCA, believe it or not. So I have a little bit of a 60 time myself. Yeah, but, uh, came nice. over in 2008. I was a... Uh, Flight instructor at VT3 in Pensacola. No big deal. Finished up my Navy time there and uh, learned about the great deal the Coast Guard is. So, Where was your uh, fleet squadron at? Uh, I was out in Japan, actually. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah. So I was out there for three years before I came back. Nice. So uh, good times. But yeah, finished up there at VT3. Uh, went to Atlantic City right off the bat. Did five years up there. So four as an operational pilot and then my student engineering syllabus there that last year. Yeah. Went down to the great air station that is Barinkin. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about... Uh, a shame of things to lose in the 60 transition, Barinkin, man. I got to stand a, two weeks of duty there yeah, and it just was incredible. What an incredible tour. Probably the best tour of my uh, career by yeah. far. Uh, had a wonderful time down there. Uh, so did three years there. Uh, came back to Houston. Was the EO there for the great terror roost that was Hurricane Harvey in 2017. So yeah, uh, was the largest air station ever for a little bit with 30 aircraft or 30 helicopters. And, oh yeah. yeah. So great time. Uh, got to meet pretty much every pilot in the fleet. That was pretty neat. Um, and then uh, went off to Purdue for two years for the structural engineering program that we have through the uh, aeronautical engineering program. It was great until uh, my first semester under my belt and then COVID hit. Oh, so man. spent most of that online. Yep. Awesome in West Lafayette, <laughs> but uh, got here last summer as the uh, product line engineer for the 65 at SRR and uh, fleeted up to be the product line manager this summer. So we yeah, got about those, a year under my belt here. Yeah, for Sorry. those that don't know, Commander Creo should have instant street credit with any 65 pilot Absolute because if credit. my if my mind is not failing me, you're the one that comes up with the men's report and the only reason my logbook is yes, easy yes. to so thank so you. No problem. That, you. that was a lot of uh, duty days there at NCR just <laughs> Hanging out. Uh, you, you can only play so much Xbox before Man. Uh, your mind needs to go somewhere else. So It's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. And I, I think I'm very close to having a India-compatible men's report oh, cool. be done Excellent. by the end of this semi. So, Sweet. He's still a, working on it's it. It's a continuing project. Yeah, that's awesome. And then uh, Jared. Yeah, uh, the one and only Jared Blitz, <laughs> who Jared we're sta stationed with time, yeah. in San Francisco. Welcome, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, AMT1, Jared Blitz. Uh, I've been stationed all over. I remember program in Mobile. Uh, went out to Hawaii for four years, Hitron for four years, San Fran for four years, Savannah for a year, and then I've been at ALC end of line for two years now. Mm -hmm. I think so, you're our second repeat offender on the oh, show too. The first, ah, yeah. so close. No, we had someone last week. They beat you out. <sighs> yep. Yeah. All right. Well, Welcome back. Yeah, Jared was time. one on the uh, the Golden one Ray. wrestle Golden Ray, Golden right? Ray. Yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, which sortie were you? Were you the one who were going down through the pilot house? Yeah, we had, my swimmer got promoted, and uh, yeah, yeah, dude, that yeah. was a wild case. <laughs> it was, it was good. So it was so good. I've been getting praise and awards for that for three years now. So yeah, uh, <laughs> ride that as hard as I can. <laughs> I mean, you got the question about the future is bright here. You want to just dive right into that? Yeah, I think uh, you know for either one of you, like. 
Where, where do you think the state of the 65 is right now? Well, I, I think uh, we're in we're in great shape. I know uh, the rumors out there the 65 is going away. Uh, 15 year time horizon, probably more. I know there's a, there's another school of thought. There's special missions that we just don't know how to do with the 60 and it's going to take significant investment to do that. So uh, I think uh, special missions and, and Commander Nelson alluded to it earlier, uh, shipboard deployments, things like that. There's a lot of lessons learned that we have in uh, many of our Coast Guard missions that we're just not ready to do with the 60. And we, we may uh, not be ready to do that with them for some time. So uh, in my opinion, we're, we're still looking at 98 program of record aircraft. And uh, we are marching forward with that. Every single Delta is getting turned into an Echo mm-hmm. as of right now. And uh, to our fleet folks out there, if, uh, if you haven't seen Echo and Echo has not been part of your wardroom conversation, that is coming. And that is coming much sooner than a 60 transition is for your air station. And uh, what a surprise we have in store for you. <laughs> I, I got to take an Echo out to San Francisco. Uh, and it was really my first uh, extended period of time. Here at ALC, it's, a, it's a, a lot of interesting flying because we do crazy test flights that we really never get into in the fleet. And we deal with maintenance issues that you'll never, ever see in the fleet. Uh, but between that and cross countries, that's really all we do. So I hadn't had a chance to put the Echo really through its paces uh, since my recall and transition course into the Echo. And just what a fascinating machine that uh, that this thing is and incredibly capable. So Again, to me, that that is the the future of uh, this aircraft is Echo and our final product that uh, we're probably going to be with until the end of life of the Dolphin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can't tell you, we knocked it out of the park on this one. Just what a great aircraft that we're delivering to the fleet right now and incredibly proud of Echo. Jared has been part of this uh, pretty much from its inception and dropping those first Echoes off at Houston. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I been. think you've been to what? You've done cross country to every air station now. Uh, Sanford, I got Sanford coming up uh, a couple months or okay. so, September. Yeah, nice. Up into, yeah, Miami, Jacksonville, Helpholt, and Port Angeles. So what awesome. uh, uh, what job do you serve here at, at ALC? Uh, so right now I'm, I guess, the shop leader in the end of the line. Okay. Um, so we pick up the we pick up the plans for paint after they come through the entire production line. Yep. And we effectively run it through its paces. Um, it's taken us two years. We've worked out a really nice schedule system cards of us we can get it out and back and flying we have about 20 days 25 days to get it from when we pick it up till it leaves the door yeah so it's it's always a ha- not a hassle it's a it's interesting to see what problems we'll come up with yep um and over the two years i've been here we've really dialed the problems down whenever we find something in the line it's great to walk out and just talk to the line and be like hey this keeps coming up can you guys look at this mm-hmm. and they're real quick to fix it or modify however they're doing what they're doing to get the problem. Um, occasionally we get some, I don't know, some duds. We've, we've changed a bunch of engines, gearboxes, fuel cells. Have you? Yeah. It, it comes up. We've had a, about a year ago, we had a plane. We changed three engines, gearbox, and two fuel cells out of it. Um, until, until it was good to go. <laughs> and then we got it out. It was a good plane when it left. So it's, yeah. it's been a, it's been fun learning. the. It's a lot more tweet learning. I mean, the, the mechanical side of the Echo is effectively the exact same thing. Yeah. So have my history with the the Charlie and the Delta. It's problem solving for my side of the house is real easy. 
Um, I think it's really interesting too that the aircraft, I mean, we'll dive into a little bit more about the the product line, but you know, when it spits it out at the end, it's all, bun- I saw it today. It's just a bunch of blue suitors. It's like all you guys who have been flying this aircraft have done missions in it and like been stationed all over the place. You guys are the ones who are in it, flying it and saying like, Hey, this doesn't look right. This is good. This is, this isn't good. We got to fix this. Uh, where like the rest of the the line is all mostly or all civilian, right? And, or contractors. Yeah, everything yeah, but QA is uh, blue suitors, but yeah, everything Every, else is. Everything else, right? And so, um, which is awesome because those those individuals do fantastic work. And then. And to give uh, them credit, I'd say 70% of them are ex-coasties. Oh yeah, I'm I sure. Mean, it's a huge number. Right. And, so. uh, but there's like a warm and fuzzy to it too, like as an operator to know that the people who are saying, yeah, this aircraft is good to go as somebody who's been flying this aircraft for years or turning wrenches on this aircraft for yeah. years. Right. That's, that's a really cool concept, um, that you guys do here. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad you guys are comfortable with them. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, of course. <laughs> yeah. So talking about, you know, this, the 65, uh, Captain Holzer every time, you know, every morning brief at ATC, he's like, there are people checking in pilots that are going to fly the 65 for their entire career. And it, it's weird to think about because everyone keeps saying this like, oh, well, it's, it's going away. And you're like, yeah, in 15, 20 years, like that's a career's worth of, of flying. Um, and, and today we got to walk the product line was absolutely amazing and saw aircraft and all the, you know, different, you know, stalls that you guys have them in. What's the difference between um, what you guys were doing with a Delta, that thing going through PDM and coming out versus a Delta coming in and an Echo coming out the other side? Yeah, so traditional uh, PDM, the aircraft, uh, we try for every 48 months, we can go to 54 and then there's actually a process to take that all the way out to 60 if we do a bunch of inspections. We don't like to do that because really what we're focusing on is corrosion and corrosion just ages with the aircraft, right? So so getting them in here as, as early as we can and as early as feasible, that's that's generally our goal to do that. Uh, traditionally, the aircraft come in and really that's what we're doing. We're stripping it down and we're looking for corrosion and that that is the purpose of the entire PDM mm-hmm. process. With the Delta Echo conversion, however, we've got three other things going on, which is uh, huge. Obviously, the avionics upgrade, going to the glass cockpit, all that great stuff. But then when we realized we were doing that, there were a couple other short, uh, or not really short, long-term projects that we'd been envisioning. And with the opportunity gained by going to Echo now, we have 100% rewire the aircraft. And that means all that legacy wiring from the 80s is coming out. And that wiring, traditionally, when we bring the aircraft in, everything gets tagged, it gets preserved as best as it can, but it goes off to a sandblasting shop and it gets, you know, you guys saw the metal shop today. It goes down there and gets, mm-hmm. you know, folks are grinding on things. Um, and what a, what a great opportunity it is to get all that wiring out of there and get all the, the fuel lines and the hydraulic lines and everything and actually take that bare metal airframe and really work on it the way that you would if you were starting from scratch. And I think that's huge. And that, so we started to take advantage of that opportunity. And then we realized the writing was on the wall, 65, we need another 20 years out of this aircraft. How can we get there? And that's where we looked at the Service Life Extension Program. We went to France and Airbus and the OEM, and we said, how can we do this? And through a joint engineering investigation effort with them, uh, we are replacing the nine degree frame, which is the one uh, on the aft of the cabin uh, sliding door there. That frame right there, that's one of the four legs that really holds up the, uh, or I'm sorry, it's two of the four legs that really holds up the main transmission deck of the aircraft. And we identified that as probably the highest risk part on the aircraft Mm -hmm. for uh, exceeding its service life quickly and having to be replaced. So we said, well, we've got this thing all apart. Let's go ahead and do that now. And so being able to take the aircraft all the way down to the bare metal, strip it, get it into the metal shop, 
really do a lot of metal repairs that we haven't been able to do in the past because we've had electrical wiring and fuel lines and things like that through there and actually replace those components rather than just try to do a repair around it such that we don't have to unweave all that from the aircraft has been a huge, huge uh, a win for the Dolphin program and then get in, replace some of those uh, metal components that really needed to be replaced, buying that an extra 10,000 flight hours on this aircraft, yeah. plus the new wiring, plus the new avionics. Like I said, the product that you're getting in the Echo, sure, it's got some fancy glass cockpit, has a lot of great capability and everything, but the airworthiness uh, issues and the engineering solutions that have been implemented behind the scenes that you'll probably never see in the fleet because we deal with those here at ALC, that's the real win with this program. The operators, obviously, they increase the capability, but when it comes to airworthiness, that aircraft leaving the product line is practically a brand new aircraft because of the level that we have been able to go down during this overhaul process and yeah. get those renovations done. I, I think that point right there is the most important point for me. Uh, and especially I think about, because um, we've had flight students come through Mobile and you know they go and get to finally put in their dream sheet for the uh, detailer and they're like, I, I don't want to go 65s because I hear the 65 is going away or it's got all these problems. And, you know, there's just like this ongoing discussion about the 65 that's like, you know, it's just not the best anymore. But, you know, going through what I saw today and, and, and what you just said about airworthiness, I think that's really an important point to emphasize. Like the aircraft that is getting spit out of the line here at ALC is completely different than that Delta model that's going in and getting converted to an Echo. And it really is structurally sound, brand new wiring, all huge avionics upgrade um, that can easily last us for 15 years. Right. And you see that, uh, you saw 6533 today came in from San Francisco last week. That's a Delta. That's got four, four and a half years of flight time on it. It looks tired, right? But compare that to the Echoes that you guys are seeing down in Mobile. Uh, before, yeah, it was a nice new paint job. We may have you know, polished up the instruments here and there. Now, I mean, you have brand new components going on the aircraft and those are just the ones you can see and you start peeling off that soundproofing and you start to see the new metal work like you guys saw in the metal shop today. Uh, again, we are remanufacturing these aircraft right here and sending those back out to the fleet in Echo. So that's your next 15 to 20 years. And that's why I'm so excited about this aircraft yeah. because that, that capability is in there. It was pretty wild seeing a 65 stripped down to bare metal. It looks so tiny. Uh, it's just like a little skeleton of... Like, it looks like you could actually pick it up and, and walk <laughs> around the airframe. Above I think that's I how mean, they made it from plastic, stall right? to stall. And, and we're fortunate in that regard. You know, I mean, try doing that on a B-52 or what they're doing yeah. right out the window here on C-130s. Like, you just can't. So Can you pick up the airframe of a 65 with like four guys and, and walk around? You can around push it real easy for yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. No problem. I mean, oh. even the 60s look really small. They do. When they were broken down. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking yeah. to the shop that we thought the exact opposite. Once you took the ab rack out, we were, we were all at the shop guys like, man, look how much room is back here. Uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I this abrac. This would be amazing. I mean, that's what the, the I don't know, the commercial or corporate helicopters, right? They don't yeah. have that abrac there. Yeah, so, the so we went to uh, France. Once a year, we we go overseas to Airbus uh, in Marignan, France. And uh, rough, so, rough trips. So. It, 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 well, really rough trip. It, it was we until I got, to go. I, I feel got, bad. For I got you. COVID four days into it. So, oh, okay. I feel bad. So for I you spent now. it, yeah. Um, mostly staring out a window, but we were able to go see uh, the French Navy and see their two variants that they fly uh, down there. And yeah, that, so all of their avionics are actually all the way in the back where we keep the basket because they don't have 
yeah. a basket in the back. And yeah, absolutely. They, they have four cabin doors yeah. in addition to the two ones up front because of all that extra room back there. Dang, so again, nice. it's an incredibly capable aircraft and it's interesting to see it in a different configuration and say, wow, that's, that's really neat and really ingenious. And they have a, a different need than we do. Um, but again, going back to, well, the 65 small and it's underpowered and all, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. So what, we fly a fantastic aircraft and I'm, again, I'm super excited to be putting echoes out to the fleet, which is practically a brand new aircraft, uh, that's going to see us 15 to 20 more years. So, I, I mean, and just playing devil's advocate over here, right? You say practically a brand new aircraft and there's still people who are learning how to fly and are going to come fly for the coast guard. And they look at the 65 and like, I'm about to go fly a helicopter that is 37 years old. That's classic. Absolutely correct. You yep. know, and like how many organizations fly a helicopter that is 37 years old? Right. Right. And so right. like, that, I mean, I can see why people would think like, I don't know, like the sixties are getting built all the time. They don't make the dolphin anymore. Like, right. They don't make that helicopter anymore, but we're going to continue to fly it. Um, I don't know. What would you say to somebody? I know we're just talking about the whole reefer, but Somebody who's thinking well, that you, you look at the B-52, the Air Force is stretching that out to 100 years. Um, I'm not saying that uh, it, it's interesting. When I was at Purdue, one of the, the topics that kept coming up was composite helicopters. We, we are flying the first majority composite helicopter. Right. So no one knows how a 40, 50-year-old composite helicopter ages, but we have advances in non-destructive inspection and DI technology. There, there's, there's all these things where, again, we can monitor it and make smart decisions about where we're going, you guys saw today, we were replacing belly panels on an aircraft. Those are composite pieces. Those are things we look for. Um, it's out there. So, uh, yeah, we get nervous. I'm driving a 60-year-old car. But if I took it into the body shop every five years and did a full body off frame restoration and whatnot, uh, I don't think anyone would have any issues with that. So, again, like it comes back here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how we're turning these aircraft around, the, the amount of renovation that's going on, in particular, this Delta to Echo transition cycle is immense. And that was really, again, the whole purpose of it was to get us out that 15 to 20 years at a minimum for this aircraft. It's funny. We joke about the age of our aircraft, but then when you tell somebody at like a public affairs event, you're giving tours and you tell them how old that aircraft is and their jaw drops. Like, how does this thing look so brand new? This thing is amazing looking, right? Right. Oh, fresh paint job fix yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Always paint job. <laughs> yeah. Fresh paint job. And the job. wax. We're putting a lot of time in waxing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I got, I got to ask, um, last couple of years, we, we've been struggling with, with main gearboxes. Matter of fact, we went down to 78% program flight hours. Saw the message. We're, we're back up to 100% uh, already or starting yep, in August 1st. August 1st, yep, right? So yeah. A week. yeah. So um, what happened and how are we back to 100%? Well, that is a, that's a very interesting story. The uh, components within, we call them dynamic components here at uh, on the product line. Uh, we, we have our own internal shop. We're one of very few organizations that actually has the ability to break that gearbox all the way down and put it back together. Um and uh, that's a fascinating subject all on its own that you guys got to, to peek behind the curtain and you just we missed did. it. Yeah, we, it yeah we actually had a uh, uh, trainer from Airbus who came over from France and he was here for the last two weeks doing some training with that. And the, the partnership with Airbus and the OEM, I think, is what's really grown. And this example here is a huge uh, feather in the cap for that relationship between the Coast Guard and Airbus. Uh, so the main gearbox housing is magnesium cast. It's a sand cast uh, process. 
And the other thing we deal with a lot in engineering is this aircraft was designed in the mid-70s. And fun fact, we don't actually fly the A365. We fly the AS366. So we fill out our flight plans. What? Uh, really? Yeah, exactly. So we fly the AS366. I think there was a four-flight thing. If you don't put 366, it'll reject a flight plan now, I think. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyways. The, the FAA does, last I checked, they don't have a 366, which is why we files the 365, but we're actually fly the Dolphin 2, believe it or not. So huh. once we re-engine in 2008-ish, we're now the AS366 GA, whereas before I think we were the G1. But anyway, just fun trivia there. But uh, a lot of the things on this aircraft were designed in the 70s. And so the manufacturing process behind that is using 1970s technology. So the main gearbox housing that we use is actually a sand cast magnesium uh, poured casting, and mm-hmm. then it gets machined. Well, the problem is it's a, it's a very time-intensive, labor-intensive process, and it's very prone to failure. So for every three castings, we get one main gearbox housing that we can actually use. And even then today, uh, we call them sand inclusions, but if any of that sand gets in there, and our, our biggest problem is around where the control servos for the rotor head mount we have to actually x-ray that and make sure that there's nothing there. And if there's not, then we have to start machining those out. So long story short, a lot of these dynamic components kind of fit into this realm of they're incredibly flight critical. And if we don't take our time with it, then we're going to start hanging on where airworthy parts on the aircraft. And we all know we don't want to do that. Mm-mm. So uh, we started to get behind in, in some of these things and uh, working with Airbus to say, hey, Commandant has said, we've got 20 more years on this aircraft, so we need to get to yes on this. And uh, Airbus really chipped in and helped us out. They overhauled six of these main gearboxes at their facility in Texas in Grand Prairie. They have a a dynamic component shop just like we do. Uh, Airbus itself corporately pushed these, uh, the manufacturer of these dynamic components. For instance, the housing is made by a company called Avio, which is a subsidiary of Fiat, and that's done in Italy, in uh, Turin. Mm-hmm. So really getting involved with the OEM and saying, how do we get to yes on this? How can we find a smart engineering solution to get to this point uh, has really turned this program around. I think it really highlights the cooperation between the Coast Guard and the OEM now uh, to get us there. I look at uh, airworthiness, you know, there, there's three things, three ways you can solve a logistical problem, right? And as the product line manager, as uh, Commander Nelson was talking about, our job really is to be the catch-all and support the fleet. And I think it's kind of a paradox in that if ALC is doing our job, the fleet is the magical mystery box where aircraft and parts just kind of come from because Mm -hmm. there are no supply, supply issues. There are no airworthiness issues. Everything just sort of happens, right? So I tell our fleet EOs that if they have to get involved in what I'm doing, then I have failed because they're aware of what we're going. I want the operator to get up at 2 a.m. on a dark and stormy and not worry about where that part is, whether or not it's airworthy, whatnot. Go out there, execute the mission, and the last thing you have to worry about is the airworthiness of the aircraft, whether or not it's going to fall apart. And you think about, I don't know, 80 years ago, I think about World War II when we were, I mean, just planes were hitting the water left and right, right? And that's yeah. why hazard pay became a thing because yeah. the machine itself was not safe, right? And I, yeah. I think we're on the, the back end of that now. So, but anyway, uh, three, three ways to solve a logistic issue. It's either material, meaning I got the part on the shelf, it's money and I can go buy the part or I need an engineering solution, right? So if I don't have it on the shelf, I probably got to go buy it. Well, that's great, but there's a lead time involved with that. And when do these problems generally crop up? Well, it's a Saturday morning and I don't have the part and I need this plane to stand the ready that night. Well, the other two aren't going to help me if I don't have it on the shelf. 
and I got to buy it. So my last option there is an engineering solution. So how do we get to, uh, yes, how do we get to airworthy? How do, how do we use the resources we already have to keep you flying safely? And I think in the past, our relationship with the OEM wasn't as robust as it is today. And they were just sprung load to hit the easy button, which when it comes to anything safety, you just say, no, you can't do that. Right. Cause that's, that's not safe. Um, the last several years, once we started to, to work the Delta to Echo transition and the gearbox is a great example of this is we have the involvement with the OEM now to do engineering analysis, to do engineering investigations, to find paths to yes, because it's not that they can't say yes. It's no one has done the groundwork to explore various avenues to get to yes. And now that we have the engineering analysis done and we've worked with them, there are ways to get to yes. So it's not that your main gearbox chipped out and we're saying, yes, the gearbox is safe based on the fact that we're out of gearboxes. It's because now we have the engineering analysis that the OEM has provided us and that we've worked together with them to say, well, we were too conservative in the past because we were just going to say no and tell you you couldn't do it. But actually, yeah. we looked at the data now. We've made a risk decision. And really, that's all engineering is, right, is is a matter of what risk are we willing to take. And with air, uh, airworthiness, that's a very small oh, amount yeah. of risk, right? And for we good, get there. For a good thing. Um, yeah. So getting back to 100% program flight hours has been a, a huge win in both logistics and engineering because now I have a parts and logistics chain that has caught up to our fleet demand, but I also have engineering avenues now where we have data to stand on and we have engineering analysis done to say, okay, well, we've been too conservative with this in the past and now we can confidently say that this gearbox is airworthy, whereas before we didn't have any of that legwork and that was a, tr a tremendous amount of risk for myself as the engineer and the tech warrant holder to go out and say, yeah, you're good. I, I can't, I have to base that on something. I didn't have that before and I do now. So it was a, a multi-pronged effort to get us where we are today. Yeah. And I think it's something that I've, I've been guilty of this is um, growing up in the Coast Guard, you see like, okay, whatever, whatever part we're talking about, oh, if it breaks, you replace it, you replace it, you replace it. Um, and now it sounds like, well, maybe we don't have to replace it. Maybe we can fix it. Maybe there's um, someone that can do sheet work at, at, a, at a unit now. Um, and it's not necessarily that um, we're taking shortcuts. It's just that we have the ability and the processes to say, yes, I believe that is airworthy. Absolutely, go, go do that. Is, that. is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for instance, uh, hoist cables, I know they're out there. I know, uh, I know we're all hurting for them. And this is... Yeah. Uh, this is <laughs> I, have you been spying our almas? Because, yeah, we had, I think the other night we had, trying to get like, you know, day water students out. And it was like, we had five echoes, three of them are up and we had one... One hoist cable, right? Or one exactly. hoist capable aircraft, I should say. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, He's got her robbed out of the off the hangar deck. Someone came over and took one of ours in the middle of the night. Right, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, so we uh, we're being very judicious. IOU note. Yeah, the, the aircraft uh, here at ALC, uh, harvesting what parts we can, uh, but growing that uh, organic repair capability within the fleet. Is, is something that uh, we, we have to take a round turn on. And so for hoist cables in particular, it's, hey, uh, most air stations should have the ability to swedge the cable and maybe you can cut the damage off. Like work with us. I understand there's a problem. We're, we're doing everything we can. We reached back out to the French Navy, said, hey, what kind of cable do you use on your hoist? What can we do there? Unfortunately, we don't share the cable with the 60, so we don't have a cross compatibility there. Uh, but at the same time, 
the fleet has a swedging tool. Maybe they haven't used it in a while. Hey, it's okay if you've forgotten how to do this. Call us. We can. We have the procedures here. We have the expertise. We have the artisans. We can get you on track. Maybe this is something we can explore. And again, it's it's a team effort maintaining these aircraft as airworthy. And the engineers uh, in the fleet, the EOs, and myself work together every day to make sure that we can put the maximum number of airworthy aircraft out there. But that's the most important part is these aircraft are airworthy when they hit the line. Mm-hmm. Again, my biggest my biggest drive is that when that crew takes that out in the dark and stormy, the very last thing they have to worry about is the reliability of that machine that's going to go out there. We have enough going on with weather. Shoot, Jared and I were f- trucking out to San Francisco and those crazy uh, wildfires there in New Mexico. Just uh, We were well clear of the, the TFR to stay out of the smoke, but the next thing we know... Uh, we just kept getting lower. And, and we're in the New Mexico desert. I have never oh, considered, yeah. <laughs> like, what if you go inadvertent IMC in the New Mexico desert? Like, how does that even happen? Yeah. Um, so where do we end up? Las Vegas, New Mexico, I think. Yeah, not the great Las Vegas. Oh, the yeah. 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 That existed until we landed. That was not a great <laughs> like, spot. This is right. not what I thought Las Vegas yeah, was. Where right I remember I? more lights. and yeah. Man, yeah, that's cool. Do you guys kind of track PMC rates uh, and things like that? Um, other than hoist cables, do you guys care about that here at ALC? I'd say, so, it- yeah, so PMC and NMC are, are, are different beasts. And the PMC part is really up to the unit EO and the unit commander, right? So let's take Atlantic City or Hitchron. Do I need a hoist? Uh, I don't know. I can send my planes down to NCR. It's perfectly fine to go do that. Um, Hitchron, I got to hang my, uh, you know, the, the gun strap from the hoist hook. Okay. So I need something. I can't just take the hoist cable off the aircraft. Mm. I got to have something up there to hook it to. Maybe it's RFI. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, so PMC is a very sticky, sticky animal for us. Yeah. Uh, there are certain things, uh, let's say, so when I was in Houston. It was pretty normal to get Hitron planes in to feed the machine that was the Hurricane Harvey response. And we, we certainly got the pilots. Um, yeah. As a Hitron pilot, PMC because they're not SAR qualified, you know, we, we could have this discussion in both operations and uh, engineering. So to, to really define what PMC is, it's kind of a sticky issue. Uh, I will say the item managers in the fleet, the EOs are very good about communicating the shortage of it. Um, we do our best here with our business operation division, the BOD, to, mm-hmm. to look ahead and uh, hey, uh, for instance, I know next spring we're going to have uh, bunch of main gearboxes that need to be changed. They're just high time. That's cool. We can plan for it. We, we have a plan for that. So uh, the hoist cable to me is, is a great example uh, because were they being repaired at the rate they could be out in the fleet? I don't know. Um, so uh, I'm PMC for a hoist. Okay, cool. Talk to us. We can get you back up there. Just like we were talking about with the sheet metal repair school. Is it something we can fix at your unit? And you just need to be aware of that. So do you think there's any difference in, uh, uh, the amount of aircraft that we sign for, uh, in terms of PMC versus, you know, 10, 20 years ago, are we accepting more PMC aircraft to go out and do missions in the 65 fleet well, or do you think it's the same? See, this is where, uh, how do we define PMC for SAR, PMC for shipboard ops, PMC for RWI? Like okay. I, I don't really have visibility on that, right. um, because what's important to Christian Polyak in Atlantic city probably isn't to Craig Hermiller in North Bend. Right. So, yeah. uh, how do we define that. So I look at NMC and I look at NMCD and supply and, uh, and maintenance. And I say, okay, is the fleet getting the parts they need since the aircraft are flying? 
Yeah, so, I think that's probably maybe just from a pilot, the ops pilot perspective, because that's what you see when you're signing for Almus is like this aircraft is PMC because, for example, the, lo- the nose landing gear, they had to take the pin out. Um, you know, I recently, unfortunately, broke one of those the other day just because it got <laughs> jammed and trying to push it back down. Yeah, and, sure. Got and it's happened, it's, happened like, yeah. it's happened like two or three times. So like I've seen it two or three times and I think, <laughs> oh, this is a new thing. and But really, it probably isn't. So I just don't know if is like are you, you know, infamous yaw channel that's engaging in the 65. Is that a new thing? Is that happening more? Or is that something that is the same that it's always been? And are we just, you know, are we more hyper aware or sensitive to it? Cause we've been flying this aircraft for 35 years or, or not like, do we not need to be? Right. So again, the yaw channel, great example. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. So, okay. Am I PMC for instrument flight? Am I going to take that on a star case offshore where there's no moon and no visible horizon? FAA says that's instrument flight. Uh, so again, that's a unit level discussion. Well, where are we being off the coast of Atlantic city and I'm within 10 miles of shore with a giant lit up horizon. Uh, I don't know. That's a, a decision that the command and their EO has to make in, in working with ops and safety, uh, to get there. So, Uh, I would say I really look more at the NMC rate that says, hey, I've got an AOG, an aircraft on ground at a unit for X, Y, and Z because airworthiness, the plane is not safe. Mm -hmm. So uh, as to whether or not the PMC rate has increased or not, I can uh, speak. No one's uh, bringing yaw parallel servos to my attention. (laughs) So uh, I can can make one of two assumptions, which is either the fleet is okay with being PMC or or the supply side is fine. So that's really, again, where the EO and I get in the conversation and say, hey, I'm at you know X uh, Pacific Northwest unit and we go IFR all the time and I don't have yaw parallel servos and you're killing mm-hmm. me. And I say, cool, and I can, I can work that logistical issue. So I would say visibility wise, it's more on the unit to communicate with us because I just can't pull up an Almas report like I can with NMC where I have very yeah. specific categories and specific rules about when that, when that aircraft is NMC for what and say, Oh, okay, we're, we're behind on this. I so, mean, maybe this, it might be completely unfounded, but sometimes I feel like, you know, we are accepting more of those PMC yaw channel aircraft for flight operations because it's become the norm right. where like, you know, maybe when we first got the aircraft, the yaw channel always worked. And if the yaw channel disengaged, it was like, Whoa, all right, hold on. Let's do a good risk discussion about this. Um, and I, I think that's on us as, as operators too, is to have that risk discussion. Like, yes, PMC, yaw, okay, that might happen quite often. But when was the last time you sat down and talked, hey, what does this actually mean? Like, I'm going to go out and hoist and I don't have the yaw channel. Like, how does this affect me? How does this affect the hoisting operation? And trying to like have that good conversation with the crew before you go out. I don't know if that's happening as much anymore. I don't know. What do you think, Kenny? I don't know. Um it's really hard to tell. I, th- I think we are probably hyper sensitive to, to some things. So I, yeah, I, I would say probably more hypersensitive towards things. Cause there's always been, I mean, the entire time I've been in the coast guard, there's always a, there's a PMC aircraft for, for something thing, on, yeah. in, in the hangar, you know? Um, and it's not necessarily un- unsafe. Um, are you seeing more not mission capable for supply um, or, or maintenance? So we, uh, we generally hover uh, right around that commandant target, 70%-ish of, uh, of availability. So that's, that's our general fleet, uh, fleet usage there. So as you mentioned, though, we did scale back program flight hours. So when you 
fly less, your availability goes up, right? So yeah. uh, how that is going to shake out, time will tell. Uh, so, you know, we, we have our list of our, our top five heavy hitters, and you're probably already aware of them, you know, the nose landing gear, the fuel cells. Uh, th- those are the long-term lead issues that we know about. Mm-hmm. And then the hoist cables, that's kind of a short-term thing. No one can really saw this coming. And, uh, and, and here we are. Uh, I think the research was there, the investigation for how these things could fail and corrode and whatnot. And we have a, a nifty little project that ESD is working on called the Zephyr, which will inspect our cable for us and clean it and, and do all this, these neat things to try to move on. Yeah. Everyone around the table shaking their head, but yeah, it, is, it is a thing. I look at both mechanics yeah. here and they're both shaking yeah, their head. It's, here. it's something we're looking at, you know? So again, those mitigation strategies are out there. Um, so we're, we're doing our level best not to be surprised by these, uh, these fleet shortages here. But now we get into the, uh, how predictable is it? Uh, we know AHARS is going to go and they eat cables when they're out there. So how can we uh, prepare for that bump in things? Uh, I can't plan for a war in Ukraine, which shuts down the supply chain. Uh, we have a, a big issue going on right now because the uh, blast media that we use for the airframes is apparently sourced from there and yeah. the s- supplier said they can't get any more. So mm-hmm. how do we- Can't get any grain. Right. How do we yeah. uh, How do we do that? Again, we're back to the table with Airbus. It's like, hey, we can't use X. Do you have any experience with Y? You know? Yeah. So that's uh, that's our day-to-day battle here. And like I said, if, I, if I'm doing my job, the fleet never hears about this because that aircraft is ready on the line when they need it. Yeah. Is there anything to mention to the flight mechs out there that are like turning wrenches on the plane or continually doing uh, maintenance that you see here that's any different? Or, you know, was there anything that when you were in San Francisco, you're like, man, why is it always like this coming out of ALC? And then now you see how the sausage is made. Uh, It's been interesting seeing what the line puts to us at the end of the line. Yeah. Um, We've done a, I mean, I think a really good job of, I guess, filtering or filing down the things that we're getting from the line. Um, it's not necessarily their fault. It's just uh, the planes are different shapes. And like, I mean, like uh, cowlings and fairings are a thing that we're constantly fighting with the end of the line. They just don't fit as comfortably or as nice as we're used to. And the fleet, they get worn in. Mm-hmm. They get broken in. So at the end of the line, we're trying to break them in as fast as we can to get them for the fleet to work. But we know sending them out like, a chime panel is going to be sticky here or there, or a uh, cowling or fairing is going to be hard to put on or something. Yeah. Um, but once they use them a bunch, it gets worn in. I've seen, like, when I was in, last in Savannah, we got one from ALC, and you get it and you look at it, and the first thing people look at is the little things that, oh, why didn't they catch this, or why didn't they catch that? But yeah. having been here and seeing how far down we take it, and if you're catching, like, all right, you know, this screw is different than this screw, or I don't know, just something weird is a little bit different than you're used to seeing in the rest of the fleet, if that's all that it is, we've done a phenomenal job getting this out to you. Yeah. I mean, we look at them over, QA looks them over, they get looked at constantly, but sometimes the little things are like, all right. I mean, I've I've constantly fought with the Avrac where it's uh, these Phillips and flatheads uh, things are attached to the side. It's just one of those things that gets you. It gets you. You get in there with yeah. just one screwdriver. Yeah. You're like, it. why can't we do two <laughs> every time? So it's been one of those things that we try to catch it here, but like I said, if we're changing out like three fuel cells in an engine or something, like that's one of those things that, yeah, all right, it's going to come out that way. Like, I mean, we've all dealt with it. It's been like that for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. All right, cool. That's the thing. I mean, realistically, you were, I mean, you're changing everything out on the aircraft, including yeah, the wiring now. Like yeah, you're the changing brand new. everything on the aircraft. Yeah. Well, 
Uh, so we, we do try to get the same components back on there. It's just they've been overhauled and inspected. Right. But they're off the one. aircraft, right? Yeah. So, that, you know, off. we take everything off and we, we completely reassemble the aircraft. Yeah. Uh, even more so now than, uh, you know, just a few years ago before I started Delta Echo. Yeah. So. Uh, you guys have any other parting shots or things that you wanted to, to talk about before we wrap it up here? I just have a small little thing. I'm super yeah. excited about the 60s taking deployments. They're welcome to them. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Day, go for it. Let them yeah. have it. <laughs> Sign them up. Sit on the yeah, 75 Get your audio book. Yeah. yeah. They're get not your deck of cards. They're not like ready. The, they have no idea what's they coming. They have no idea what's coming. <laughs> They're not ready. <laughs> what about you, like sir? I like to eat to sleep. Sleep to eat. That was a good one. Yeah, I do. I like that. We used to call it time warp. He's going to sleep and wake up. Time warping. All right. It's the next day. That's great. Got a time warp. Yeah. Any other thing you want to say about the 65 fleet out there, sir? No, I'm just, uh, I'm really excited about the direction we're heading. I think the, the biggest thing for me coming in as the EO uh, is that our relationship with these OEMs has improved and they're committed to sustaining the aircraft for as long o as the Coast Guard. OEM will. is original equipment, equipment manufacturer. manufacturer. Yep. Nice. Okay. Well, that, done. well done. Yep. So that's Airbus, that's Safran, that's a, a majority of the components on here. Um, so... The vendor support is out there. Uh, I had not seen it when I went to France. So when I was here as a student engineer 10 years ago, the Airbus with, or the relationship with Airbus was not where it is today. Um, and yet I come in for our first program management review, which last year was online over Google Meet or something. I don't remember because mm -hmm. we couldn't go to France because of COVID. Um, so when I was walking in, that that's what I was expecting was this, you know, adverse relationship, whereas suddenly everybody's hugging and giving high fives. And, you know, we were about halfway through the main gearbox debacle. And uh, it was clearly a team effort. And I, I pulled uh, Adam Cernovich, the product line manager at the time, aside. And I was like, Adam, what what happened here? Like, this is crazy. And he's like, oh, it's, it's a whole different relationship now. And, it, and that has really come to fruition. And we're in a great spot right now. And I go over there. We have groupies at Airbus in France. I mean, they just love <laughs> what we do. Yeah. And, uh, and how proud the Coast Guard makes them as the manufacturer of this aircraft. And they specifically made us walk around the factory in our trops because they wanted to show the support that they have and the immense pride they have. In, that's awesome. In the aircraft and what yeah. we do with it over here, you know, and, and I think that's one of the coolest parts about being aircrew is we get to see both sides of that relationship. Uh, yeah. we're, we're not only here with the engineers uh, in the trenches and the slide rules doing the great things, um, but Jared and his team down there, uh, we had an aircraft that he was talking about. Um, we were just having a heck of a time with gearboxes earlier in this year. Y'all came out for your stand visit. Uh, I think that was March. I'd flown four hours this semi-annual because <laughs> aircraft availability was just kicking our butt down there. Killing it. I mean, what, three in a row we were changing main gearboxes on? Yeah, we had a few that were pretty bad. Yeah, uh, but his team, the industrial capacity here, and his team down there, we could change a main gearbox in three days. It's impressive. And get it back out there run. You cannot do that at any fleet unit that yeah. I'm aware of. Um, so uh, to see that and to see the OEM, and, and y'all didn't get to meet our on-site technicians today. We have... Uh, uh, one guy from France permanently on our staff here. We have another guy from Safran just for engines. And then we have our Rockwell Collins representatives here. So the uh, industrial powerhouse coupled with the support of the OEM that, I mean, they're out there as we're turning the wrenches, um, getting the help we need. And they're, they're always willing to get on a plane and come help us. That, that, that always hasn't been here. So when I talk about the Echo being the next 20 years of the Coast Guard, it's not only a new aircraft, it's a, it's a new relationship really with the vendors who support it and, yeah. and moving forward. And they see that and they take it very, very seriously. And uh, again, if you want to say the Coast Guard 
is get rid of the 65. That's true. The Coast Guard's also going to get rid of the Wimsel and they're going to get rid of future vertical lift <laughs> yeah. 70, 80 years from now. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're nowhere near that point with the 65 right. and uh, we have the logistics train behind it. And uh, we're, we're fighting the good fight here. And like I said, if I'm doing my job, you never hear about that in the fleet. Yeah. And uh, if you do, I have failed. So that's a, a mission that myself and everyone on our product line takes very seriously. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our future is secure. I would definitely say like the 65 future is secure. We're not going anywhere. The aircraft is airworthy and, and we're ready to fly it. So it's awesome. Yeah. I don't have any other questions. You got any other, Jerry, you got any other parting shots? No, I'm good. Sweet. Well, we really appreciate your time and uh, thanks for letting us dive in. I know we talked to the 60 guys earlier in this episode and uh, it was great to get that perspective from, uh, from the hangar deck, the engineering here uh, at ALC. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank thanks, you. Jess. Appreciate it. We say goodbye.